Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. This podcast is about the Byzantine world of the business of big-time college sports, and my podcast takes you into the inner recesses of the truth of the big-time college sports business model in the 21st century. Just a reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found on my website, which is bigamateurism.com. I've got my episodes there. I've got uh, show notes. I've got descriptions. And I've got links to resources that I mention on an episode-to-episode basis so that you can check those out for yourselves. And then I also have a blog, cagerredux.com, C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. I've been writing in that for over two years now, and I have switched my emphasis to the podcast. So I bring you through in the blog to just before the Austin oral argument, but there's some good stuff there as well. And I link to some of my blog posts in the show notes or the description for my podcast. All right, today we are going to continue our discussion of the prisoner's dilemma. And in the last episode, I brought us through using a timeline framework that kind of played off of Keith Donovan's 2004 book, The 50-Year Seduction, that dealt with the evolution of the television era in big-time college football and the influence that has had. So we brought you through to about uh, 2010, and now we're going to talk about what I believe is the biggest bull market in the history of college sports, and that's the time frame of 2010 up until COVID. But to fully understand the impact of that period, we have to now really look at how big-time football interests aggregated their power into the Power Five. And I want to talk a little bit about exactly what the Power Five is and why it is so important to the business model of big-time college sports. So first, just a mini recap of what we talked about in the last episode that led to the creation of the Power Five. So you had this historical tension between the Big Ten and the Pac-12. I'm going to use the current names, even though they had different names back then. But the Big Ten and the Pac-12 had this rift with the ACC, SEC, and Big 12 that ran pretty deep and prevented the cooperation of all five of those conferences. And that was the result of the Southern football conferences and schools taking on the NCAA in the Board of Regents case. And of course, as we know, in that case, football won its financial freedom from the NCAA. After Board of Regents, there was this disorganized market and this tension between those two groups of conferences continued and intensified in some ways. And you had a disorganized post-Board of Regents football market 
that really wasn't as successful financially as the pre-Board of Regents status quo had been, where all uh, five of these big conferences were part of the same television package. So over the years and in the chaos of the post-Board of Regent years, at least from a football market standpoint, the big-time powerful football interests came to a sense of cooperation, some through market forces, but There was also this conscious effort to try to bring together all of the major football interests. And that occurred through a crazy process of conference realignment where these five conferences, and there were some other conferences involved that don't exist anymore because of conference realignment. But basically, this was a football-driven movement where conferences were trying to get as many big-time football schools into their conference so that they could then go to the networks and sell the most attractive football packages in the marketplace. And and Donovan referred to that game as a, a high stakes game of musical chairs. And on the backside of that, you had these five major mega power conferences with these expanded geographical footprints and lineups from a football standpoint, at least, that captured nearly all of the high value football schools and football products in the marketplace. So those five conferences are the ACC, the Big Ten, the Big 12, the Pac-12, and the SEC. So I'm just going to go ahead and list all the schools in those conferences. There are 65 schools, and this will help you get a sense of just how powerful these five conferences are, not just at the football level, but I want you to think about this also at the political level, because when you look at the composition of the schools in these five conferences, these 65 schools, you have some of the most powerful institutions in higher education in America. And they have exerted their political influence in the COVID era, in the perfect storm that I talked about in the first episode, to aggregate their political power to get what they want in Congress. And that's a really important component of that. And then the other thing I want you to think about as I'm reeling off these schools is the aggregation of basketball power, because that is so important to this prisoner's dilemma and the detente that exists between these major three moving parts, which is the NCAA national office, the big time powerful football interests, and then big time Division I men's basketball and the CBS Turner contract, which is the NCAA's cash cow. Those three moving parts, as I said from the very beginning of this podcast, are the Rosetta Stone to understanding the business model of big time college sports. And it's those three interests that we have to understand to understand the prisoner's dilemma and the impact of the incentives underneath the prisoner's dilemma. Okay, so let's start with the ACC. The ACC is comprised of Boston College, Clemson, Duke, Florida State, Georgia Tech, Louisville, Miami, UNC, North Carolina State, Pittsburgh, Syracuse, Virginia, Virginia Tech, Wake Forest, and Notre Dame. Now, Notre Dame is a full member of the ACC in all sports except football. They've retained their independence because of the value of their brand. But remember, in the 2020 fall football season, Notre Dame was a full member of the ACC for football purposes, really to facilitate a schedule. All right. Now we have the Big Ten, and the Big Ten is comprised of Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, Maryland, 
Michigan, Michigan State, Minnesota, Nebraska, Northwestern, Ohio State, Penn State, Purdue, Rutgers, and Wisconsin. The Big 12 is comprised of Baylor, Iowa State, Kansas, Kansas State, Oklahoma, Oklahoma State, Texas Christian, Texas, Texas Tech, West Virginia, the Pac-12 on the West Coast. Arizona, Arizona State, California, UCLA, Colorado, Oregon, Oregon State, USC, University of Southern California, Washington, Washington State, Stanford, and Utah. The SEC is the Southeastern Conference. Alabama, Arkansas, Auburn, Florida, Georgia, Kentucky, LSU, Ole Miss, Mississippi State, Missouri, South Carolina, Tennessee, Texas A&M, and Vanderbilt. 53 of those 65 schools are public institutions and some of the largest public institutions in the United States. 34 of those 65 schools are the flagship state universities in their state. And you have just breathtaking political power at the state level. So uh, the big flagship state universities or the universities that have uh, several really large public institutions that are part of the Power Five have enormous influence at the state level, in the state legislatures, in the governor's office, in the judiciary. And that power cannot be underestimated in terms of how the Power Five have been going about protecting their interests in their quest for the Iron Throne of college sports regulation and the elimination of federal courts, of state legislatures, and of any other third-party influence that could interfere with their authority and their revenue streams. And then at the national level, these institutions also have enormous political influence, in part because of the influence they have in their states that transfers into the thinking of the representatives in the House, and but more importantly, in this perfect storm and this name, image, and likeness debate and this effort by the NCAA and the Power Five to get these extraordinary federal protections and immunities to protect their business interests, the United States senators, and when you watch the hearing that occurred, the four hearings that took place ostensibly on name, image, and likeness. And you look on the committees that held those hearings and you go senator by senator, state by state, flagship state university to flagship state university. You can hear, see, and feel in those hearings the importance of big-time college sports at the political level. And that's an important component of this that I'm going to break down more specifically when we get to analyzing the events in the perfect storm starting in May of 2019 and going through to the present. And when I walk through those four hearings, I'm going to use individual senators to illustrate the power of this dynamic, regardless of their party, regardless of their gender, regardless of any other decisions that they make regarding issues that might give some insight into how they think about these extraordinary federal protections and immunities. This is a unique setting because of the place that big-time college sports and big-time football in particular have in the American psyche, the American consciousness, and American culture. 
So I said in the last episode, and I used some quotes from Donovan's book. And remember, his book was published in 2004. So that was during the BCS era. The conference realignment wasn't complete. You didn't have the Power Five fully formed. You didn't have the college football playoff. And you didn't have this massive market expansion of the conferences through bigger contracts for the regular season and then through conference networks. And I'm going to talk about that in just a little bit here in this episode. But you had this juggernaut of power at the sports level, at the financial level, at the market level, at the political level, and it is just breathtaking. So this is a beast that has never existed in American college sports. And it is a clear, identifiable, coordinated aggregation of power and market share that has completely changed college sports. And so when I said in the early episodes that the Power Five and the two money-making sports within the Power Five, which is football and Division I men's basketball, were the business of college sports, that's what I meant. And from a financial standpoint, that is clearly the case. So in Donovan's book, when he was talking about the stratification of the football interests over the years and their conscious effort to segregate their interests from the rest of the NCAA. He divides the football interests into four categories. And he calls the big time football interest the headliners. Then the next tier down, the spoilers. And then below them are the pretenders. And then below them are the Ivies. I think we could just take the Ivies off the table now, but you have to remember that part of this consolidation and separation of power was the elimination of the Ivy League. And there were some other products that had been in the headliners group that kind of got pushed out without a lot of discussion. So I want to look at that for a second, because back in 2003, 2004, when Donovan was writing this book, the separation between the headliners and the spoilers wasn't as clear as it is now because of the conference realignment. So conference realignment started in the 90s, but really wasn't complete until 2010, 2012. And there were some really important transactions that occurred in conference realignment between the end of Donovan's book and this 2010-2012 period, including the ACC picking off a bunch of Big East schools. So the Big East isn't on any, any of these lists. The Big East tried in the early phases of conference realignment to bring in some powerful football schools to try to keep themselves relevant in the discussion. And then the ACC came in and just picked off all those big football schools. And that resulted in some bad blood there. But it relegated the Big East to this lower tier that's really irrelevant from a football standpoint. It has some relevance from a basketball standpoint. And I'll talk about that when I talk more about the March Madness contract and the value of the product and the importance of the Power Five products within the March Madness marketplace. So let's apply for just a second. Donovan's framework, the headliners, spoilers, and pretenders to what the Power Five became in 2012. And when you look at the composition of the schools that I just listed off, a lot of the spoilers were folded into the headliners. And what was left 
are these, it's called the Group of Five Conferences, and they are technically part of the college football playoff. And they were this group of conferences and schools that back in 2003 to 2006 really pressed to try to be relevant in the discussion about access to the major bowls. And, you know, you had these hearings and then an agreement to try to appease these schools, but it really didn't help much because those schools don't play in any of those bowls. And now they're brought into the CFP, I think, for anti trust immunity and camouflage, but the separation between the power five and the group of five is so extreme now that you don't really have a meaningful set of spoilers. So I'm looking at uh, Donovan's framework, so headline spoilers, pretenders, and ivies. And I would say now in big time college sports in this football bowl series subdivision, that has the power five and the group of five, you really have the headliners and the pretenders. And occasionally there's a team, Central Florida, uh, Cincinnati, you know, some of these teams have, have made a run that gets a conversation going about whether they should be included in the four teams that compete for the national championship under the college football playoff format. But they, they haven't gotten there. And honestly, I don't see it happening. So, we have this massive separation, and that makes the Power Five even more of an influence in the overall marketplace of college sports. And when you look at the conferences, the individually at the Power Five conferences, and the amount of money that they have made since the realignment era pretty much came to an end in 2010-2012, it's just eye-popping. And I'm going to read off some stats here. So I put together a chart for my blog. I use it in the timeline. I use it in a couple of blog posts. And I compiled this chart from trial exhibits and from expert reports in the Austin suit at the trial court level and at the trial phase. So their experts put together some numbers on the increase in revenues, the increase in commissioners' salaries, and the importance of additional programming that have occurred since conference realignment in this 2010 to 2020 period, the pre-COVID period. So I'm just going to go through this because this really puts into perspective just how fundamental the market change has been through the aggregation of the power in these five conferences. So for the Atlantic Coast Conference in 2010, their total conference revenue was $167 million. In 2018, their total conference revenue was $464 million, an increase of 180%. In 2010, the ACC's conference commissioner was paid $1.4 million. And in 2018, he was paid $3.5 million, an increase of 150%. The Big Ten in 2010 had total revenues of $232 million. By 2018, their revenues had increased to $758 million. And that is a 225% increase. The conference commissioner's salary in the Big Ten in 2010 was $1.2 million. In 2018, 
it was 5.5 million or an increase of 350%. In the Big 12, total conference revenue in 2010 was 148 million. In 2018, it was 373 million, an increase of 150%. The conference commissioner's salary went from 1 million to 4 million in that eight year period, an increase of 300%. The PAC 12 in 2010 had total revenues of 101 million. In 2018, they had total revenues of 496 million, a 390% increase. And the conference commissioner's salary went from $735,000 to $5.3 million, an increase of 650%. The SEC in 2010 had total revenues of 244 million. In 2018, it was 660 million, an increase of 170%. And then the conference commissioner's salary in the SEC went from 1 million in 2010 to 4 million in 2018, an increase of 300%. I mean, that's just mind boggling. And those revenues, those total conference revenues, include all sources of revenue. And that would be their regular season packages in football and basketball, any money they get from March Madness through this uh, really arcane distribution formula. It includes any bowl games that they play in, and it includes the revenue sharing from the College Football Playoff, Inc., in addition, and, and this is a separate category, so you have all those sources of revenue that go into this big number of total revenue, but then you have had all of these conferences starting their own entirely independent sports networks, and that's a big component of the massive growth in big-time sports programming and big-time sports exposure and big-time sports revenue. I just want to go through each conference and talk a little bit about when their conference network was set up and then who they partner with. Because in these conference networks, they the conferences don't, with the exception of the Pac-12, they don't really handle the production end of it. They partner with a sports media broadcast outlet who does all the production stuff. And then the ownership is sometimes split. Sometimes it's 100% to the media outlet, but then the revenues are shared. So they've worked out these deals so that there is a really tight link between the broadcast media outlet and the conference network product, which in my judgment, has also facilitated some kind of encroachment by these big media outlets into the regular business and space of the universities in those conferences. So let me just uh, go through that list as well. So in 2007, and I'm jumping a little bit back from 2010, but 2007, the Big Ten did a deal with the Fox Corporation and Fox Sports for a Big Ten conference network where Fox would get 51% of the revenues and the Big Ten would get 49%. So Fox owns the network essentially. And they're they're funding all the costs, all the operating costs, and all of the things necessary to make the product available, except, of course, for you know the, the facilities and the talent. Um, then in 2009, the Big 12 did a deal with ESPN. And this one's a bit of an outlier because the actual ESPN-Big 12 partnership devolved into ESPN kind of taking over the programming in, in 2014. But I guess 
technically they still have that relationship. And then in 2012, the PAC-12 started their own conference network. They didn't partner with a third-party media outlet. They had, did everything in-house, so they bear all of the production costs, all of the infrastructure necessary to provide the product, and then they keep all of the revenue. And the, so they're, the PAC-12 is 100% owner of the PAC-12 network. Then in 2014, the Southeastern Conference, the SEC, did a deal with ESPN that went from 2014 to 2034, a really long contract. And under that contract, ESPN owns 100% of that network. And my understanding is that there's about a 50-50 split in revenue. I'm sure ESPN is a little bit on the high side of that to reflect their ownership interest. My understanding, again, we don't get to see these contracts because ESPN and the conferences go to extraordinary lengths to hide the terms of these contracts. But I think it's fair to assume it's kind of a 50-50 deal. And then in 2019, the ACC launched its own conference network, and that is very similar structurally to the SEC agreement. ESPN owns 100% of the ACC network. Now, remember, these networks are independent of the pre-existing regular season contracts that ESPN and some of these other outlets, Fox, uh, whoever doing the, doing the deal, that they have with the conferences for regular season programming. So it's an entirely different and additional product. And so the, the financial growth and expansion in the big time sports marketplace is undeniable. But you have to remember that that is a corollary to the big-time powerful football interests having acquired complete control of the NCAA governance process. So when Donovan was talking about the BCS looking to protect its interests, that's what the Power Five have accomplished over several decades on the governance side. And then through this process of conference realignment and then the aggregation of power and then taking that power and putting it into the marketplace, they've done at the financial level. And it is just, it's a level of power that is really difficult to put into words, but they completely dominate the big time college sports business model. And they are big amateurism. So where does the NCAA fit into that? Well, as I discussed in some other episodes and mentioned briefly at the beginning of this episode, they provide all of the overhead that services the Power Five and the Power Five football interests and this massive bureaucracy that is funded almost exclusively through the March Madness contract and high-level Division I men's basketball. And that administrative infrastructure includes, importantly, the NCAA national office where their executives are getting filthy, filthy rich off of that money. And nobody's talking about that. And I, you know, back in one of the early episodes on the uh, NCAA governance and the role of presidents, it's my belief that when Miles Brand, a former university president, became the NCAA president in 2003, a lot of the curiosity about how money was spent in the NCAA national office just evaporated because he was one of them. The people who were criticizing that and complaining about it were academic interests, including some interests at the university level who were supposed to be in control of this entire enterprise. 
And they just all of a sudden uh, lost their curiosity about what was happening and how much money was being spent in the national office. And there needs to be a forensic accounting of the NCAA national office. And that was, again, one of the reasons that I liked Donna Shalala's 2019 proposal that was going to use subpoena power through Congress to get to the heart of how much money's in the system, where it's going, and who's really benefiting from it. And also remember, the NCAA is a private nonprofit organization. And the next episode, I'm going to talk a little bit about the Tarkanian case in the Supreme Court that basically allowed the NCAA to operate in the darkness. So nobody really knows what's going on at the national office and absent litigation or subpoenas. You're not going to know. And the same is true with these conferences. I talked about this in episode six, Big Ten Secrets and the Big Ten's effort to take its discussion about fall football out of the university setting and into the Big Ten portal setting where those discussions would not be discoverable through public records requests. So all of these Conferences are structured as independent, freestanding nonprofits, and they are ostensibly and legally and technically private. So you can't serve a Freedom of Information Act request on the conferences to get information on what the business model is within the conference and how the money is really being spent. And I want to talk just a little bit about the increase in the conference commissioner's salaries and tie that into the broader question that I addressed early in this podcast about who's in control of big time college sports, who are the true decision makers. And Condoleezza Rice described it as a circular firing squad through her work on the commission of college basketball. But that circular fire squad has real people in it. And the challenge in this inquiry into the business of big time college sports is to figure out who the power players are. And when you look at the increase in the conference commissioner's salaries in this post-realignment, big time power five conference business model, and then the expansion, the explosion of content and revenue, and the explosion in the conference commissioner's salaries, you begin to see who the real decision makers are. And I haven't said much about the conference commissioners, but they are so important here. And the salaries that they're being paid reflect that. And an important thing to understand is that, and I mentioned this in in my episode on Big Ten, is that in these conference organizations, these nonprofit freestanding organizations, the board of directors of those conference entities are the presidents and chancellors of the universities that comprise that conference. So when you go to their Form 990 tax returns and you look at the list of directors and then you go to the Schedule J on, on key and highly compensated employees, you'll find listed every university president at every university in that conference. And they have complete control over how that conference entity operates, how much money people get paid who work for it, how much money comes in and how the money is distributed. They decide. These are the university presidents, the people that under the NCAA constitution and through this movement, this near century long movement to have put presidents in control of intercollegiate sports. Those are the people who are deciding that the salaries of these conference commissioners should increase between 150% and 650%. So what does that tell you? It tells you that the conference commissioners are the big cheeses now 
in this big-time conference format post-realignment and the reconsolidation of all of the powerful football interests. And those are the people who are really calling the shots when it comes to big decisions, policy decisions. And when they are called upon to make a tough call, it doesn't look very good because they're not used to sitting in the captain's chair in a public way where their decisions are being scrutinized. And that really got teased out during the fall football decisions, you know, after COVID hit and basically the rest of the NCAA shuts down, but then you have the power five because they have this freedom from the uh, NCAA. They're operating as free agents and they're making their own decisions about whether to go forward and then get their big payday through the college football playoff. But the conference commissioners all of a sudden were the public face of that decision and the university presidents were hiding and they were hiding in part behind the conference commissioners. And when you look at these salary increases uh, from 2010 to 2018 with the conference commissioners, what you're really seeing is a complete transfer of power at the institutional level from the individual conference presidents and chancellors to the conference commissioners. And the presidents were sitting back, you know, who knows what they were really saying. I'm guessing they're thinking, look, we set this guy's $5.5 million salary. We set this guy's $5.3 million salary. Now he's going to earn it. He needs to earn it. And But you had the conference commissioners who really have zero incentive to look at the normative issues that the university should be look, looking at. These conference commissioners are business people. They're just like Walter Byers, the former NCAA president, who cared about one thing and one thing only, and that was doing deals with the big boys. And that's exactly what these conference commissioners do. And there was a period when they sort of came out of the, the athletic culture, but that's less and less true. These guys are businessmen sophisticated, savvy businessmen who speak the same language as the big media outlets, as the sports entertainment industry, as the professional sports industry speaks. And that is how they see their job. And it was comical to me to hear some big-time Power Five conference football coaches and athletics directors saying, who's in charge here? You know, they're pointing the finger at the NCAA. And this is one area where I guess I have to defend Mark Emmert because Mark Emmert had virtually no control over what was happening in the Power Five conferences with respect to fall football. And that was in large part because of Board of Regents, but also because as the Power Five have aggregated their power, the NCAA at the governance level has become less and less relevant to the Power Five decision. So Emmert's kind of, you know, shrugging his shoulders. Everybody's shrugging their shoulders. And the conference commissioners failed miserably in stepping up and trying to assert the leadership that the other people in the circular firing squad had acceded to them. And it was just not a pretty sight. So you had these ADs and big-time football coaches saying, well, the NCAA is not doing this, that, or the other thing. You didn't see them pointing the finger at the conference commissioners or going to look in the mirror to say, hey, wait a minute, this is on me too, because this is a business model that I created. This is a business model that makes me rich. This is a business model that's in crisis, and I'm as responsible as any other Power 5 football or basketball coach or athletics director for what's happening here. 
And instead, they pointed the finger and they whined and moaned. And if one of their, I'll just say this, if one of their players did that, they would be kicked out of the gym or off the field. Uh, it, it was just really an interesting dynamic. And I'll also note that among uh, Power Five conferences, we've had turnover in the last two years in three of them. So actually four of them. So you had John Swafford leaving the ACC just this past year during COVID. You had Jim Delaney leaving the Big Ten and being replaced by Kevin Warren, who was the first African-American Power Five Conference Commissioner or big time uh, football conference commissioner. And then you had Larry Scott from the Pac-12. He, he was the poster boy for conference commissioner arrogance and incompetence during COVID. And he made some comments that were just breathtaking in their indifference to what was really happening for the athletes themselves. And he just showed that he really had no connection to the experience of the athletes and didn't really seem to care that much about it. It was all about the money, but he's gone. And then you had, and this was before COVID, you had uh, the SEC commissioner, uh, Michael Slive, being replaced by Greg Sankey, who testified in some of these hearings uh, on behalf of big time powerful football interests. So, you know, it looks to me like when these guys got to their big payday years, they, they rode that horse. And then when the going got tough, the tough cashed out and uh, left town. And most likely with very nice golden parachutes. Of course, we don't know what those are because those aren't discoverable. And then I guess I should talk a little, in a little more detail about the formation of the college football playoff. And that occurred in 2012, but the first game wasn't played until 2015. And just to say again, and I, I will repeat this as many times as necessary because it gets lost in the broader discussions about big time college sports, the college football playoff has absolutely zero to do with the NCAA. The NCAA has zero control over it, and they don't. None of the NCAA product, none of their intellectual property, none of their sponsorships or endorsements or partners have anything to do with the college football playoff. It is an entirely separate enterprise. And when you watch the college playoff, you may not notice it, but subconsciously you may understand that you're not being bombarded with NCAA intellectual property and propaganda. What you get, the CFP has its own logo, it has its own brand, it has its own marketing approach, and it's still young. You know, we've only been playing those games for, what, six years now, but it's getting stronger and stronger and stronger. So the CFP was formed in 2012 as a limited liability company. It is not set up as an education nonprofit because, quite frankly, I don't think it could pass the blush test as an education nonprofit. The member institutions in the CFP are those in the Power Five conferences, the ones I just went through, and then this group of five conferences that I talked about a little bit. And let me see if I can pull out the list of those conferences. Conferences I don't have them committed to memory. Okay, here they are. So the American Athletic Conference, Conference USA, the Mid-American Conference, Mountain West Conference, and Sunbelt Conference. Those are the group of five. So they're part of the CFP. And again, that, in my judgment, is just antitrust camouflage 
for the Power Five. But under the revenue sharing agreement or what's made available on the CFP website, and again, we won't we don't have access to the underlying documents because they're operating as a private business entity. They're not a nonprofit, so they don't have to file the Form 990 disclosures. So you don't even get that general information. You know virtually nothing about the business of the CFP is completely off the books. But it has a you know a board of governors or I don't know what they call them board of directors and they are people who are heavy hitters at the institutional level, including conference commissioners and uh, university presidents and chancellors. So you have this interesting crossover between the interests that are involved at the governance level on the NCAA side through the board of governors and the division one board of directors, and then also on the CFP side. So you have a revenue sharing agreement that basically is an 80-20 formula where the power five get 80% and the group of five and some other interests get 20%. But the meat and potatoes of that contract are, let's see, here we go. So they did a deal with ESPN in 2012, and it's a 12-year deal from 2014 to 2025 that's worth $5.7 billion. And the average annual payout is estimated at about half a billion, $500 million. Uh, we don't know for sure. I've seen and read and heard numbers that are higher than that. So you have the the big three-game playoff. So you have four teams that qualify. You have two semifinal games, and then you have a championship game. And that was the logical evolution of this bowl championship series that was unsatisfactory to a lot of fans because there really wasn't a clear-cut formula for a reliable national champion that everybody could agree had earned the title of national champion. So, you know, I think a lot of the momentum towards this was consumer driven. But in the way that it's structured, you've got the big playoff, okay, which is kind of the equivalent of March Madness. So we remember in the prior iterations of big time football, you didn't have that. You didn't have like the big national championship. You had these bowl games, these major bowl games, rose, orange, cotton, sugar, and then fiesta that were big ticket items that the big time schools and conferences dominated and had explicit tie-ins with. But you didn't have an independent national championship. You have that now. I think this is the logical extension of Board of Regents and the aspirations of the College Football Association. And then I think the Pac-12 and Big Ten kind of came around to the notion that that might be a pretty good pathway. And you now have these two sets of products that have enormous market value. So you have this new playoff that's worth half a billion at least a year, but they kept the bowl tie-ins with all those major bowls to the major conferences. So they have, uh, I don't have the list in front of me, but of all the bowls, but you've got, you know, the major bowls, you've got Fiesta, I think the Peach Bowl may be tied in somehow, but you have these bowls locked into taking teams from the CFP pool which means that all of that money, and it, that could be three hundred million in a you know regular year, going into CFP coffers and then being distributed on an eighty twenty revenue split with the Power Five getting the eighty. And remember, and this is so important too, and I'll keep reemphasizing that the money that comes in through the CFP and through these bowl tie-ins 
and through all of the big time college sports programming, regular season and, and all that stuff and the conference networks. That stays with the conferences. None of that money gets put into a big pot that the rest of the NCAA association-wide, meaning any other element in Division I, anything in Division II, or anything in Division Three, none of those interests have any financial claim to any of that money. And the Power Five isn't sharing that money with these other interests. That is completely opposite of the March Madness contract money, where all of that money is put into the NCAA national office pot, and then the NCAA starts spreading it around association-wide and funding all of the administrative overhead. So the big-time powerful football interests are having their cake and eating it too in a big way here. And I think that we have to keep that in mind as we're looking at the prisoner's dilemma and what the various incentives are among the parties. So that's a good segue into how the NCAA in this same time frame has really ratcheted up the exploitation of the March Madness contract, this long contract that started really in 1988 and extends into 2032. So let's look at some of the milestones in this 2010 to the present period relative to the NCAA's attempt to get as much money as possible out of that single tournament and out of that single contract. Because remember, the NCAA has exclusive authority to negotiate the rights for that contract and all the terms and all the financial benefits. So the NCAA is, as the football product is becoming more and more powerful as a consolidation of power, both at the financial level and the political level and the governance level is consolidated through the uh, conference realignment and the power five, the NCAA is looking at how it can uh, imp increase its leverage and improve its position in this unholy triangle. And one way that they do that, and I mentioned this in early episodes, was through this absurdly long CBS-Turner contract that basically guarantees the perpetuation of the administrative state. So in 2010, there was a very important amendment to that contract that brought Turner on board. Prior to 2010, CBS was the only media broadcast outlet that was a part of the March Madness contract. And then following the economic crisis in 2008, CBS, well, a lot of businesses, but CBS fell on some hard times financially, and they weren't sure that they were really getting their bang for the buck in the March Madness contract. And then there was this a, a limitation of having CBS only televised that tournament because you weren't getting full games because of the limited number of outlets that they had. So you had some games that looked great on paper that weren't being televised at all. And then you had some games that were going on at the same time that were really high value, high return on investment games that they weren't showing completely. And so they were going back and forth from game to game. And it really was less than ideal from a consumer standpoint. So those two things combined led CBS to kind of shop the contract around. And ESPN was really interested in it. And there were, it looked like for a period of time there in that 2009, 2010 period that ESPN might jump on board or even buy out CBS. 
But after all those negotiations, the net result was that CBS and Turner partnered, and then Turner used all of its broad array of products to increase the overall content output in the March Madness tournament. So you were getting complete games in the early rounds, and it really was a much better product from a consumer standpoint. Oh, and by the way, that additional increased content output also resulted in a vastly higher number of advertising slots. So the money was going to be rolling in a little bit faster and uh, a little bit higher. And the other thing that happened was uh, during those negotiations, there was some discussion about expanding the tournament field to 96, again, to increase the number of games, increase the number of TV time, which means increased advertising revenue, theoretically. But the discussion was whether that would really kind of oversaturate the market for this tournament. And they ultimately decided to stick with the 68-team format and the additional uh, broadcast outlet opportunities through Turner. And when that deal was done, it was a 14-year deal worth $10.8 billion. And it was an escalating contract that guaranteed the uh, NCAA substantial annual increases. And then in 2016, the NCAA and CBS Turner extended that contract yet again. And this took it through to 2032. So it added eight years to the previous contract, taking it into 2032. That's a very long contract. And over that additional eight-year period, the NCAA was going to get $8.8 billion, so $1.1 billion per year. It was also an escalating fee contract, so the NCAA would get more and more each year. And of course, the terms were not disclosed. But uh, just to put this in perspective, Judge Wilkin did this in the Austin opinion. She looked at that contract over its life and calculated that it was worth $20 billion. And then another point worth noting along that timeline is that in 2016, the NCAA Board of Governors extended NCAA President Mark Emmert's multi-million dollar a year contract for five more years through to 2021. So maybe that was his bonus for negotiating that contract extension. And remember, the NCAA president, I addressed this in my episode on uh, the NCAA president its office itself. The NCAA president is responsible under the administrative regulations and executive regulations in the NCAA Division I manual for negotiating and selling the NCAA's intellectual property, including the broadcast rights to March Madness. And then in 20. 18, and this this was, I think, around the time of the Commission on College Basketball's report and the scandal in college basketball. The NCAA Board of Governors in 2018 extended Emmert's contract again through 2024. And there was virtually no pushback on that, no discussion among the membership or the university presidents or all these academic writers and critics of the big-time college sports model and spending and all that stuff. And my belief is that they were very reluctant to look at the absurdity of those contract extensions and the absurdity of the amount of money Mark Emmert was being paid because he was one of them. 
And that's pretty much what it came down to. So Mark Emmert gets a very nice contract extension in the wake of a scandal over which he denied any responsibility. <laughs> so yeah, I'm, I'm going to do a separate episode on the Commission on College Basketball. And I've talked a little bit about the press release Emmert sent out when he announced uh, the commission, but it's really a priceless example of the, the NCAA national office and the NCAA president refusing to accept responsibility. So you have this basic template that's set with big-time football getting to the holy grail, this decades-long quest for this credible payday at the end of the season. And they've got everything in place. And then they play the first game in 2015, and it is a rousing commercial success. And it is growing and growing in appeal and popularity and value, importantly. And you have on the NCAA side, you've got this expansion of the March Madness contract and revenue and essentially job security for the NCAA national office bigwigs for, for the next two decades. Everybody's happy. Nobody's complaining. And that gravy train just starts rolling and rolling and rolling and it gets faster and it gets more powerful. And it results in a bull market in college sports where there was no concerns about athletic spending. You didn't hear anybody talking about athletic spending because there was so much money coming in. It seemed as if they couldn't spend it fast enough. And some of these Power Five schools were expanding their facilities. They were expanding their administrative staffs. They were expanding the number of sports that they fielded. And everybody was just, it was like the roaring 20s and everybody's just having a great time. And there is zero evidence of any tension among the moving parts. Zero evidence of this historical rift between the Power Five conference schools and the Big Ten, Pac-12 on the one hand, and then the other three conferences on the other. Zero evidence that there is any dissatisfaction with the status quo. Everybody's happy. And then in March of 2020, boom, it all comes to a screeching halt. And it happened almost overnight. It was instantaneous. And remember, that started with cancellations leading into the March Madness tournament. And it started, you know, with Johns Hopkins in Division Three, and then spread like wildfire. And the NCAA, despite some early comments suggesting that they were just going to wait and see, going to wait and see what happened, then they jump in and they really have no, no option once the NBA cancels their season or postpones their season because of some positive tests in the NBA. And so everything comes to a grinding halt. And all of a sudden, some of the fault lines that have always existed in this fragile detente between the Power Five football interests, the March Madness basketball money, and the NCAA national office start to reveal themselves. And I've written and talked a lot about this, and I'm going to probably defer getting into the weeds on the timeline issues that really show how those cracks got exposed in real time through the COVID era, the decisions that were made during the COVID era. But then you also have playing in the background, these antitrust suits and these state laws relating to name, image, and likeness, or at least on their face. And this movement in Congress that 
began really in uh, in earnest in May of 2019, accelerated in the fall of 2019, and then really took off post-COVID through the work of this working group to try to get from Congress all of the things that the NCAA and Power Five needed to preserve the status quo that was so good for them, that was working so well for them, that was so carefully calibrated in ways that were disguised by the bull market and the fact that everybody was happy and nobody was even looking at any of these tensions. And I think if you take COVID out of the equation and you imagine a scenario where this cynical campaign in the Senate by the NCAA and later the Power Five would have worked out, I I see a bill just sailing through with Republican support and maybe a handful of moderate Democrats to make it appear bipartisan. But I see less scrutiny because everything's going so well in the market that nobody's talking about the problems of big-time college sports. And COVID at least changed the conversation. Now, that was a big story. And and I think the working group benefited from that early in uh, COVID by working behind the scenes in Congress and and trying to get this legislation moving. But let's face it, Congress had more important things to worry about. And at the same time, you had the racial unrest, you had groups of athletes banding together, and there was a racial component to this, talking about their dissatisfaction, their concern about moving forward with fall football, their sense that they weren't being listened to. And that got some traction in it, and it resonated at a national level. And so all of a sudden, these decisions that are playing out in Congress are playing out in a much different context. I think that when you look at this period, May 2019 to the present, and you focus on how the campaign in the Congress evolved for these draconian exemptions and immunities and protections, you see that some of the fault lines between the NCAA and the Power Five start to present themselves. So prior to really uh, May of 2020, during COVID, and really kind of in the middle of this debate in the Senate, you had the NCAA driving the train on every aspect of the legislative campaign, and then also very quietly behind the scenes in this Austin litigation. Because remember, the NCAA pays all the cost for those initiatives. They pay all the legal fees through the March Madness money. They pay their high-priced lobbyists through the March Madness money. All of these experts and consultants that are twisting arms in Congress are paid for by March Madness money that comes out of the national office and the big-time football schools aren't chipping in on that. So the Power Five, which is driven by football interests, they were kind of sitting on the sidelines happy to let the NCAA take the lead. But as that campaign, that Senate campaign, transitioned into the COVID era and the NCAA, through its working group, had set a deadline of voluntary name, image, and likeness rules changes for January of 2021, all of a sudden the Power Five starts to get a little nervous and they go and hire their own lobbying firms. They write their own letter, a joint Power Five letter on May 23rd, 2020, to both the House and the Senate, laying out their case for the these draconian federal protections and immunities. And they're saying, we need it now. It has to happen now. So they wanted to press fast forward. 
on this campaign in the Senate. They were not happy with the pace that the NCAA was keeping. I think there was some sense that maybe the NCAA didn't have the sense of urgency that the Power Five had to really make this happen and make it happen quickly. And a lot of that was driven by this fear of somebody getting a competitive advantage or losing a competitive advantage in the talent acquisition market because of these name, image, and likeness laws that were being passed in different states. So you had all this frenzy, but the Power Five separated their interests from the NCAA. And that was an important separation. So they were trying, they were you know, using the same language as the NCAA. And in that letter, that May 23rd letter, they explicitly said that they really were supplementing the NCAA's effort to avoid any suggestion that there was the tension that I think really existed behind the scenes. But they wanted quick action and they wanted their voices to be heard independent of the NCAA. And that's when I really think you started to see this connection and the use of the Power Five political power that's built into the membership express itself in the conversation and the language of the discussion in the Senate. And you really have to look on a senator by senator basis to tease that out. But it's really fascinating in my judgment. And we're going to get to that. So you have this kind of separation and the Power Five's pushing, pushing, pushing. And the NCAA is doing this ridiculous dance between, oh, voluntary rules changes, which they have zero intention of offering. And I've talked about that. And then this campaign in the Senate to make the provision of those uh, benefits almost impossible. So all this is playing out. And then you have the Georgia special election that turned everything on its head because the NCAA and Power Five lost their advantage in the Senate. Then all of a sudden, this rush, rush, rush from the Power Five disappears and they just fall off the radar screen. And all of a sudden, nothing's going on in the Senate. And they're just going to sit back and eat some popcorn and drink a soda and see what happens in this Austin case. And that's one of the reasons that I think this Austin case is so important because no matter what the Supreme Supreme Court says it's going to inform the next step of the NCAA. And in this prisoner's dilemma issue, there's going to have to be a decision made at some point of whether to file a lawsuit against the state of Florida before July 1st of 2021 under the Dormant Commerce Clause. And I'm going to deal with that in a separate episode. But there's some important stuff that's going to play out as a consequence of this decision in Austin. And if the Supreme Court gives the NCAA antitrust immunity, then that will embolden them to file the suit against the state of Florida. If the court upholds the existing status quo in the Ninth Circuit, I think they're going to have to look carefully at their strategy and whether a dormant commerce clause lawsuit that could very well wind up in the U.S. Supreme Court would be received favorably by the court. And then, of course, if the court is very strong in its feeling and there's some consensus that even though the issue may not have been presented in the Austin case, but that these athletes are getting screwed and that federal antitrust laws would dictate a different result in a different case, then I think you're going to see, you know, some of these cracks in the foundation starting to bring the whole business model down. And, you know, those are important choices for both the Power Five and the NCAA. And again, that's why I think this Austin case is so important, regardless of what the court ultimately decides. So I initially thought this was going to be a two-part episode or two episodes on the prisoner's dilemma, but it looks like it's going to go into three because now that I have kind of gone through the timeline 
and have set the table for how some of these tensions have played out and kind of what the lay of the land is. I want to talk now about the choices that the prisoners have. And I want to do it in the context of the language that Seth Waxman used in framing the context for the prisoner's dilemma as he saw it. And there are two ways to look at it, and I'm going to look at it both ways. But I really want to walk through what each side gains or loses either through cooperation or through following their individual self-interest. And I think that's going to be a fun discussion. So with that, I'm going to close this episode out and I want to thank you so much for joining. And I want to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care. 